mean, you've been putting in work for so long. Putting in a lot of work. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Putting In Work. I'm John Peck, and this week, it's a bit of a special one. A few weeks ago, I had the chance to sit down with my uncle, Steve Trestrail, who is a man with a story unlike anyone else I've ever met in, in all my interviews as a journalist, and I've been fortunate to know him for my entire life. So it's a story that I'm really pleased to be able to tell today. The last episode I did like this was with my mum. It's not going to be a family member every time I break from the typical format, but it just so happens that mum and, and Steve both had really awesome stories to tell, I think. So Steve was a champion barefoot skier. He later became a Paralympic basketball player for the national Australian team after a nasty accident that left him unable to walk as a paraplegic. The things he's done since losing the use of his legs are just awe-inspiring the more you get to know Steve, the more you admire what he's accomplished since then, not just physically, but he's taught himself to excel in other areas. So here is Steve. I'm really proud of this interview, so enjoy the show. First of all, it's a long time ago for you now, but you were at one point a champion barefoot skier. Can you tell me what that means for people that don't know? I had a friend who uh, encouraged me to uh, to water ski. So I I actually started water skiing when I was 14. Between 14 to 17, I started to barefoot ski, which is really just about skiing on your balls or your feet. And you did lots of tricks. So you'd go forwards or you'd go backwards or you'd try to create new tricks all the time. How do you actually ski without skis? Well, there's two things. One is that you can, to start barefooting, you would either ski and then step off from a ski onto the water. So you'd put pressure on one foot to be able to take the, on, on your bare foot and then you'd actually transfer the weight. Or the other alternative is, is that you would actually somehow be dragged along on, on the water, either on your stomach or on, on your bottom, and then you'd slowly apply pressure onto the water with your feet, which would allow you to stand up, and whilst you're holding the rope, being able to be towed along on your bare foot. So you kind of did this as a teenager? Yes. Yeah. Yes, I, I was barefooting between the age of 14 right up to the age of 19, and my other key sport was... Um, was certainly ski racing, which was basically skiing behind a boat at fairly high speeds with one ski. Right. So how fast would you be going? With ski racing, it depends on the power of the boat, but certainly for myself, I was skiing somewhere between 130 to 160 kilometres an hour. Wow, that is incredible. Yeah, <laughs> not very fast. I can't imagine how that would feel. <laughs> yeah. Just to kind of give us an idea, because I obviously wasn't around at the time, but what level of success would you describe as what you reached? From speed skiing point of view, I was uh, the best in the state from South Australian point of view. Uh, when I skied from a national perspective, I would think that I was most probably in the top 10 at the time of mm. my age. So, And that was through competing in national events and winning state ones? Correct, yes. Yeah, so... Um, when you're around about 17 to 18, you would most probably be at the top of your peak type thing. So, mm. uh, and open men's and, and certainly, um, open boys. One, at one stage, I was, ended up being fifth in the, in the 16 to 18 category. And in the open men's, when I actually did have 
a major fall, which actually ended up in an accident. Um, I was coming second at the time of, uh, of that race when uh, in the open men's category. Sure. And we've been talking about like those speeds. Yes. And the accident that you had. What was it like that day? And can you explain kind of the injuries and the effects since then? Yeah. The day was, it was an extremely hot day. So I was at the Hawkesbury River, just near the Wisemans Ferry. It's a 30 kilometre race and you're normally averaging around about 140 k's per hour. And uh, I'd most probably travelled about 28 k's into the race and sort of very nearing the finish line. And I knew that I was actually doing quite well. And for some unknown reason, whether it was fatigue or whether I just hit some sort of uh, boat wave, um, I just fell or collapsed and, mm. and rolled. The next thing after that, I just realised that I was face down in the water and uh, I was sort of going in and out of consciousness and um, certainly pushed my, pushed my hands back very quickly to be able to take a breath. And the next thing you know, I saw, saw the boat uh, that I was skiing behind coming towards me. Right. And from there, I, I suppose you were treated and there was all kinds of medical stuff happening so what was like that like it must have been incredibly unsettling to be unsure of what was the result in terms yeah. of long-term injuries yeah well the first thing um i remember was the the boat driver very quickly turned the boat and they were coming towards me and they jumped into the water from that point they asked me whether or not i was okay and i said yes i was and that i actually had hold of their leg at the time and the boat driver sort of said to me straight away that it wasn't my leg that, or wasn't his, uh, my leg that I had hold of. It was actually his. So I realized that at that time that I was in trouble and that certainly my life was about to change because, uh, I had clearly straight away no feeling in my legs at all. Mm. Um, the next thing I remember from that point of time was that, um, that I was put on a little airbed and floated in from uh, the middle of the river into the shore where I was taken from ambulance uh, around about a kilometre to Wiseman's Ferry. And then after that, there was a, a helicopter. Once they stabilised me, a helicopter took me to the Royal North Shore Hospital where I spent the next five weeks uh, in hospital there. Mm. And so... I think there was a period where you were still hopeful of being able to regain the, your movement and feeling. What was it like, I suppose, as you gradually came to realise that that wasn't going to be possible? Yeah. Well, I knew very little about being a paraplegic. Yeah. That's the first thing. I, I I could hardly spell the word versus <laughs> to understand what, what, what it actually meant and how it would have an impact on my life. One of the things, uh, so for the next five weeks in the Royal North Shore Hospital, I had to lay completely on my back. What was really wonderful at that time was that I had unbelievable support from family, girlfriend, from friends who came in. Um, the hospital where I was was also in an area where that there were other people who were being real other paraplegic or quadriplegics that were being rehabilitated and they frequently came to visit me so it gave me an understanding at that time of mm. what was possible and what life could be without being able to use your legs it gave me some sort of hope 
that there were opportunities, which is, you know, being able to drive, being able to be able to work, being able to get back into the community and, mm. and get some self-esteem um, from, you know, once I re-entered the community from the hospital bed. Sure. And so flashing forward now, it's been how many years since since the accident? Uh, it was 1980. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so it was, uh, yeah, it's yeah. 30, 35 years ago. Yeah. Sure. And when you look at everything you've been able to accomplish since then, which we'll get into, did you ever think that you'd have done all the things you've been able to do? Uh, definitely not. Yeah. So, you know, and I, I contribute that to a bit of my upbringing, which is really about strong determination, strong will. But I also contribute that to the people who surrounded me, who gave me the confidence and the real drive to be able to get back to where I needed to. It's a little bit like when you have an accident, it's you feel that, yes, you need to do it for yourself. Hmm. But because you had really great support, if you didn't achieve what you, the goals that you had planned, it felt like that I was letting other people down as well. So, between the determination that I had and the drive that I that I felt that I needed to actually put into rehabilitating myself and getting back to mm-hmm. um, into the community was also uh, not letting other people down. So there was there was two key drivers there. Okay. Yeah. And what what would be the thing that you've done in that, this time that you would think you would be most proud of? Because I mean, you've done sporting achievements you've obviously worked your way up through kind of a corporate yeah. setting and just even things like driving a car is amazing when you think about the struggles that could or the barriers that are in place there as well it's it's potentially being able to you know establish a strong family life and to have two children and and my wife and to be able to support them so i think that that's been most probably the uh, major thing. Mm. I certainly, from my life, um, I did never excelled at school. So for me, when I left school, I was a plumber. Once I had the accident, I couldn't go back into that profession. So I had to go from a blue collar to a white collar working environment. I had an opportunity to be in, in the insurance industry, which gave me a lot of a massive opportunity to be able to support my family, but also to be able to, for me to learn new skills. And those skills, I'm pretty proud of where I am now, which is certainly as I've worked over the last 30, 32 years within the, in an administrative job to be able to get where I am now. Mm. Excellent. Yeah. And uh, you are coming from such a sporting um, adolescence, I suppose. So, mm. When was it that you realised that you could still have an active lifestyle and how did that kind of develop to the point that you were actually one of the top basketballers in Australia? Yeah. Um, one of the things when I was in hospital, I realised that um, the first thing that I needed to do was to really look at um, my independence and independence was a number of things it was about my mental state it was also about my physical and how I could actually uh, be able to be strong enough to be able to transfer from let's say a car to my chair or from my bed to my chair and so on but it's also when I look back now it's 
my wheels became my legs. And so therefore, I really needed to be able to get to a stage where I felt really confident in my chair and to be able to manoeuvre it around, um, to be able to negotiate whether or not if I had some barriers that, that I come across with the gutter or something, how do I actually get up to, get over that gutter to be able to get to to from point A to point B. And through that, through my real rehabilitation, I learnt really good and strong wheelchair skills. Those wheelchair skills gave me confidence and it, and it allowed me to go out and go out into the community with confidence and I, and I gained self-esteem from that. And the biggest, the other biggest thing was that it allowed me to or open up doors to other sport, which was certainly things like uh, wheelchair racing, it, it, basketball, wheelchair tennis, but certainly basketball was the key focus for me and the wheelchair skills and, um, and just the camaraderie that I had and the encouragement from other people allowed me to gain more confidence and flourish within that basketball, I guess, community that, you know, wheelchair people have. And uh, it certainly allowed me to, to go places with the national basketball team. So can you just tell me about playing at the kind of the highest level for that and those Olympic experiences as well? The first thing that I remember uh, was I was extremely excited when I got chosen in 1988 for Seoul um, and uh, going to a country that I've never been to before and um, and with a team that uh, were a lot of my friends that I'd played with um, over the past you know four or five years and um, I remember outside this, the outside of the stadium where that you're all meant to just gather before the opening ceremony. And, uh, we went into the stadium with the music going and the Australian flag in front of us. Um, and we went into a stadium with a hundred thousand people just all cheering. And, uh, it was absolutely amazing. So it, my experience was, was just brilliant. The basketball in Seoul, we ended up coming 10th, but it was, uh, an introduction to me of how talented other countries were, how how strategic they were on court with, you know, blocking and being able to shoot and, and certain plays. So, you know, I was looking forward to from 88 to go to, to Barcelona in 1992. I was certainly a, had improved from a basketballer, both strategically, mentally, uh, physically, and uh, we had gelled as a team quite well we ended up coming fifth of that tournament so you know i was extremely proud of where we'd come from you know leaping from 10th to fifth in four years time where i was looking forward to atlanta and um so uh, about three four months before the team uh, was going to leave i was actually given a job opportunity so i was named in the atlanta team I was given a job opportunity, um, which I couldn't refuse in the insurance industry. And so I made a decision that I needed to pull out to fulfill that dream of, you know, being able to work at, in the field that I wanted to. And, um, so I, I pulled out, but at the end of the day, the, uh, the team went on in Atlanta and I was extremely pr- pleased and proud of all the teammates who actually went on to win gold. So that was a, yeah. that was a great achievement by them. 
So you were watching at home cheering them on? Yes, I uh, I made a few phone calls at time because <laughs> I remember they had lost the first two games of the tournament and so I made some phone calls. But it was really pleasing that then from then on I think they won every single match that they had played. So, yes, I, I was uh, You had a fire under them, did you? Uh, so, yeah. no, <laughs> no, definitely definitely not. I had nothing to do with it. What kind and, of phone calls? Uh, uh, look, it was just a, a couple of uh, very close mates from... From South Australia, from Adelaide, and uh, uh, we just had a had a chat. To I just wanted to understand where the where the team was at, and um, and uh, yes, I was no no wisdom was passed on, <laughs> but it was certainly uh, it was certainly pleasing that they were able to turn the sure. turn it around to win. And I guess it, it's it's kind of cool that you were part of the training that got them to that point and played a part. Yes. In yes. That way. It's kind of yeah. like the footy player that does every game up until the grand final and misses out on the medallion. Correct. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, so I played for 12 years and um, so it was interesting where that uh, I just pulled out, you know, three, four months prior to that one and then they went on to win. So that says something for my the way that I used to play. Mm. But, you know, a couple of years uh, in, I came back after that and I played in my last game was 19... 19- 98 in the World Championships, which were in Sydney, and we ended up coming fourth. So, so I missed out slightly on, on a medal there as well. But yeah. again, my experiences throughout basketball certainly gave me a strong determination to succeed. It gave, certainly gave me confidence and just sport in general. When you get back, it gives you the self-esteem to be able to go out in, as I said previously, to to the community and be really active and be confident, knowing that you can actually contribute. So, which is uh, which is a, a big part of uh, of where I've come from, from my own accident to where I am now today. That's great. So often on this podcast, I'll ask people, creative people, what's the you know the hardest work that you have to put in to you know get to the place that you're at. But with you, it's got an entirely different kind of you know background so for you as someone that was you know you had the whole world ahead of you and then you had your accident and I'm sure there were some really hard emotional times but what was the hardest part about kind of picking yourself up and setting yourself up for a life that is by most people's perspective not really missing out on on much because you've just done so many things it wasn't uh, it wasn't the acceptance most people would say oh look it's the, the acceptance of the accident and how you would actually move forward for me um i've got a an uncanny ability to be able to departmentalize in, in the sense of the injury was one thing not being able to walk again is something else so it was really going i needed to draw a line in the sand so for me it was drawing that line in the sand, recognising that I, I cannot walk. And then it's really about going, I can sit here and dwell on that the glass is half empty or I can actually dwell on that the glass is half full and what are the opportunities that are open um, to me. And I think that if you can explore the opportunities that are presented and if you have a positive frame of mind, then things actually happen for you. So, you know, people talk about, well, you know, look, you're lucky. It's it's not about luck. It's about really going, okay, if you've got a strong, supportive family, if you have a really good work ethic, 
and then you're looking at the opportunities that are presented and you're actually not afraid to take those opportunities. Mm. And I think that's the key thing for me was I was never, once I'd been able to gain reconfidence and self-esteem, I, I, those opportunities I just tried to grab every single time, which allowed me to be able to get to, you know, to, to, to achieve my goals or dreams that I needed to. That's great. Yeah. And you say it like, it's, you kind of make it sound so easy because, you know, you've, you've got to the point where you've been able to push all those things down and just focus on what you want to do next. But I imagine for a lot of people, they couldn't imagine having to, to go through that. So do you think, like you've mentioned how you grew up with this work ethic yeah. and do you think that some people find it harder than others to kind of accept their limitations and focus on, you know, what they can do? Definitely. First of all, there's, there's a couple of things that I need to say here. One, one is that when I was in hospital for the very first time, I was in a ward. Um, and as I said previously, I didn't know what a paraplegic really was and, and what they can do. But in that ward, I was in a four bedroom ward and I had three other people in there and they were, had a more serious ac- accident, which was that they were quadriplegics, which means they couldn't move their arms and so on. So first mm. of all, I was really, that that set me back to go how lucky I was mm. knowing that I still have some function and, and the ability to be able to get on with life versus, you know, someone who has a more of a struggle or more of a fight in their life to be able to because of their arms and also their legs. So that, that was, you know, something that I thought of. Also, when I first was injured, I also went through with a couple of people through the rehab hospital who are no longer with us. Um, what they did was they struggled with coming to terms with their injury. They felt that they were less of a person. Um, they also had, prior to the injury, they had were in relationships or, or partnerships and they broke down because of the injury essentially, um, because as a person, I don't think they changed, but the way their, their thought process was or, or just people view them, their physical um, presence, um, that put pressure on relationships. Um, and a couple of those did commit suicide, um, so which is really disappointing. But So it is a struggle for certain people. But again, it, for me, it, if I come back to the support that I had and the clear message for me was I can never give up on myself if other people have not given up on myself. Mm. So that gave me a will and that determination to keep going. Yeah. And I think there's so many lessons in that. Like for you, it's, it's a disability, but for other people it might be, you know, they might think that they've got a rough deal in life through whether it's circumstances or relationships or other things that impact them in their life. But looking at what you've, the way that you've picked yourself up and, and just faced ahead and, and accomplished everything you have, I think yes. that it can apply to so many different areas, whether it's physical or, or not, don't you think? Yes, I definitely do. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, that's great. I'm glad we agree. <laughs> uh, so another question that I ask people on this show is, what would you do if you knew that you couldn't fail? I really, one of the things that I really enjoy is about mentoring and and, uh, and coaching people and stuff like this and and uh, trying to bring the best out of people. So that is certainly an area where that once that I've finished my working career that I'd like to 
to focus on. But yes, so, so that would yeah. most would be. That's awesome, and yeah. I think if if you just tell them what you've told me yeah. today, that you'll do just fine with that kind of thing. Thank you. <laughs> this yeah. is good practice. Appreciate for you. it. Thank you. Cool. Thanks for sitting down with me, Steve. I really appreciate uh, just opening up and, and sharing this stuff. Knowing yeah. you for my whole life, but hearing it like this is really a privilege. So thanks a lot. Thank you. Appreciate it, John. Thank you for listening. That was Steve Trash Trail. You can catch me on Twitter at Johnny himself. As always, leave me a rating in iTunes if you feel like you want to help the show. Until next week, keep putting in work.